Our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 14. Join me now in a prayer of illumination. Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us. Bless Pastor Jim as he expounds your word. And open our hearts and the eyes of our hearts that we may see Jesus. Help us to conform our will to your will and follow where you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he lived, loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can we have but the kingdom. And Saul, I, David, from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved with his house, within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pinned David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. The word of the Lord. We are continuing today in our series on the life of David, and last week we studied David's famous victory over the Philistine Goliath, 
And today, we begin to see what uh, began to happen in the weeks and in the months afterwards. There were those who said, our text today is a case study in jealousy and what it can do to a person, as we see in Saul. And there are three things that I'd like to invite us to focus on today. First, the, the danger of jealousy. Second, the antidote to jealousy. And third, the treatment for jealousy. Each of the, the main figures in our text illustrate these points. Uh, Saul shows us the danger of jealousy. Uh, Jonathan gives us the antidote to jealousy. And David himself offers uh, the treatment for jealousy. So let me explain. Let's start with the, the danger of jealousy. One danger of jealousy is the way in which it encourages and, and invites a heap of other emotions and attitudes, like the ones that we see in our text today. Envy, anger, hatred, fear, suspicion, bitterness. Uh, it's, a, it's an ugly soup. Uh, part of what we need to see is how all these flow together and are interconnected. So let's look at the story. After the battle with the Philistines, uh, Saul and David are on their way home. And as they travel, the people are coming out to celebrate. The women are singing and, and dancing. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And there's nothing here to suggest a, a criticism of Saul. Uh, even though he might have been criticized for not going up against Goliath, as, as maybe you could say he should have as the king, uh, but we don't hear anything of that. They're just celebrating in the victory, and it's just that David's achievements have begun to overshadow Saul's own. I mean, David is the guy who, who defeated Goliath, after all, and, and everyone's just, they're just happy about it. But Saul sees this, and he's angry, very angry. It feels unfair to him. He doesn't like the comparison very much. He's quick to be offended. He's threatened. And he begins to be suspicious of David. Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul is a, a warning to all of us about the danger of jealousy and how it can grow from a small seed of bitterness. Approaching a person in this way is like looking through a prism that bends the light only in one direction. Every interaction is interpreted in the worst possible way. Motives are questioned. It's a corrosion that eats away at trust. When you find this kind of jealousy uh, or bitterness in a marriage or a friendship or a church or even a whole political system, uh, the result is devastating. Saul shows us what happens. First, he is violent, and then he is afraid. Notice how verse 10 emphasizes the order of events here. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he became unhinged and, and vindictive towards David. The order is important here. Uh, first, Saul is angry, then suspicious, 
And then, and then only then does the, the harmful spirit enter into him. This is very similar to what we find uh, in God's dealings with Pharaoh in the Exodus story. In that story, you may remember, we uh, find that first Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, both stories are making a profound point about the way in which our character develops. When we repeatedly make choices to treat others badly, uh, God honors those choices, and like addicts making grooves in our brains, it becomes easier and easier to treat others the same way. When Saul was angry, after hearing the women sing in celebration of him and David, uh, he likely didn't expect himself to be throwing a spear at David the next day. Uh, but that's what sin does to us. We start in one place and find ourselves in another. A place that we chose and we didn't choose, but that is the inevitable result of our choice to harbor a grudge or to be consumed by fantasies of revenge. In addition to Saul's violence, though, there, there's also his fear. And these usually go together. The hardest materials are also often the most brittle. On the outside is Saul's bravado and bluster. But on the inside is a deep fear of David because he is more successful. And the Lord was with him. Saul, rather than trusting that the Lord has a good purpose for his people beyond himself, Saul sees David as nothing but a threat to his own power. In our world today, we often approach power in the same way. You know, maybe not throwing spears at our enemies, uh, but so often uh, we still view others as competitors uh, for power and control. The real message of this chapter is that God is the one with all power, and he will use whomever he chooses when he chooses. And Saul's problem, his real problem, is not with David, but with God. Because it's God who has chosen to grant success to David, and Saul can't stand it. The question for all of us to consider is, how will we respond to what God is providentially doing, even when it doesn't align with our own preferences or plans or self-interest? Saul shows how dangerous jealousy can be when it takes over a person's heart. It will corrupt you, and if you let it, it will destroy you. Jealousy is a bitter poison, but thank God that there is an antidote. And let's talk about that, the, the antidote to jealousy. This is what we see in Jonathan uh, in the opening verses of chapter 18. If there was anyone uh, who should have felt threatened by David, it would be Jonathan. Jonathan is the firstborn son of Saul. He's the prince in, in line for the throne. But when David appears and defeats Goliath, Jonathan immediately recognizes God's calling on David's life, and he devotes himself to him. 
This is so surprising. And there are two things you need to know about Jonathan that are covered earlier in uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, first, he's portrayed as a person of deep faith in the God of Israel. Now, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, he encourages his armor bearer to go alone with him up against a Philistine garrison. And in uh, 14.6, he says, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It's, a, it's basically the same thing that we heard David say to Goliath. It's the Lord who saves. The battle is the Lord's. And, and so you can see that David and Jonathan are united in faith uh, before they meet. And the second thing to know about Jonathan is that he was also a very successful military leader in his own right uh, when David comes along. He'd already won many victories of his own against the Philistines, and so he was well on track to succeed his father. And yet, even though David's appearance changes his future radically, Jonathan loved David and made a covenant with him. When he makes this covenant with David, what he does here is symbolically very rich. So look at verses 3 and 4. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan is not just giving uh, David a present like with what he happens to have on hand. He's symbolically giving up his right to the throne. Why would Jonathan do this? Because he recognized in David the true king, and he's responding with an unconditional, loving commitment to him. David and Jonathan will become close friends, but the foundation of their friendship is not shared interests, but this shared commitment initiated by Jonathan. In fact, when the friendship begins, their interests are not aligned at all. And it would have been natural for David to be threatened by Jonathan, just as Jonathan could be threatened by David. And so Jonathan strips himself. Even giving David his sword and his bow, which is a shocking thing for a warrior to do. What he does here reminds me of a, of a dog rolling over on its back to show its belly uh, with a new playmate. You know, that's what it means for a soldier to give you his weapons. He's making himself vulnerable in order to build trust. Here's the antidote for jealousy and for bitterness. It's covenant love like this. Jonathan makes David more important than himself. In faith, he accepts the way in which God has raised up David for future leadership of the nation, and he recognizes that the Lord is with him. He doesn't resist God's will, like Saul, but instead submits to it. In the New Testament, we see something similar in John the Baptist. Uh, when John's disciples uh, told him that the ministry of Jesus was growing, John said, he must increase, 
but I must de decrease. If the fruit of jealousy is suspicion, anger, and fear, the fruit of covenant love is loyalty and devotion and other-oriented joy. We find a, another example in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph, you'll remember, is cruelly treated by his brothers and sold into slavery. And many years later, when they are reunited in, reunited in Egypt uh, and their father Jacob dies, the brothers are afraid that now Joseph will get his revenge against them. So the brothers fall down before him. But Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. When you're able to look at your life in this way, trusting that God can use even your difficult circumstances or difficult people for your good, then you will have a mindset that allows you to do the same thing as Jonathan, to give up your power, to allow new leaders to rise up, to extend a hand of friendship to your competitors. And this changes everything. Jonathan's action offers the antidote for jealousy, but it often takes time for our attitudes and our mindsets to change toward other people. We need a, a, a kind of treatment for jealousy that's ongoing so that we can pursue renewal every day. And David shows us what this looks like, and we're going to see it more in the coming weeks. We're going to see how David is able to maintain his integrity despite the attacks of Saul. In our text today, uh, he is silent. Uh, but even this has something to teach us. The Bible teacher, uh, Beth Moore, uh, offers a really good word about resisting bitterness. And I put a long quote from her on the Reflections page uh, today. You can look at it later. But I encourage you to do it, to, to read it. But, but let me just share a couple sentences from the end where she says this. A bitter root can't live long in the rich soil of divine love. Our lives rooted and grounded in God's boundless affection become happy poor hosts for bitterness. I love that phrase. Happy poor hosts for bitterness. That's what we want to strive to be. We want to be happy poor hosts for bitterness so that these attitudes can't work their way into our lives. And what Beth Moore says, it says, that it's by being rooted and grounded in God's affection for us that this happens. It's so insightful. The joy of the gospel resists jealousy and bitterness because when you're rejoicing in what God has done for you, his presence becomes more important to you than your own advantage or your own achievements. You want to be where God is at work, even if you're not at the center of the action. And this is what allows a person to turn the attention away from themselves and to be champions of the good works of others. This kind of joy comes from saying that in the gospel, God has done for you the very same thing that Jonathan did for David. Jonathan comes to David, 
and he pledges himself in covenant love. He assures him of his affection. He strips himself of his power and the symbols of his authority, and he gives everything to David. He gives up his rights to kingship. He makes their friendship completely unconditional. Do you see how Jesus did these things for believers? In his incarnation, Jesus also gives himself to us to assure us of his affection and love. He strips himself of all his power and authority so that we might be clothed with his status as sons and daughters of the king. He gives up his rights and suffers and dies so that we might know that there is no treasure that God is unwilling to sacrifice to bring us back to himself. He shows his devotion, his loyalty, his unconditional commitment by taking our sins upon himself on the cross. You see how that lays a foundation of friendship that is completely unconditional? The goal of the Christian life is to work these truths more deeply into our hearts so that we can grow in the grace and love of God. And when we live out the gospel in all its fullness, it has life-changing power. And let me close today with an example of, of what this can look like. Uh, one of the most powerful stories of transformation that I've ever experienced, uh, who was a deacon uh, when I arrived at the church. And Craig has a wonderful story, but our relationship started off kind of rocky. I had only been at the church for a couple of months uh, when he came to me and he said, I am quitting as a deacon. Now, he had been offended uh, by someone else in leadership over a slight minor disagreement, uh, but it had become much bigger in his mind, and that was it. He was out. I quickly learned that this was not the first time that he had quit as a deacon, uh, even under similar circumstances. Uh, he had served as a deacon a few years ago, uh, previously and had, had also done the same thing. And it was so surprising because professionally, he was so successful. He was a tenured professor of information uh, science uh, with many publications to his name. He was a chess master. He was a corporate consultant with IBM. But he just couldn't handle conflict. And as I got to know him, I also learned that he'd had a very difficult uh, childhood and upbringing. Uh, his parents uh, were un unable to care for him and his three siblings, and in the 1950s, they were moved into a children's home, an orphanage in upstate New York, and over the next six years, uh, he saw his mother only twice, even though he, she only lived 36 miles away. And his father, his father would, would dutifully come every two weeks for one hour, uh, and during that time, they would just sit silently in a conference room. Suddenly, his uh, aversion to conflict and his thin skin made more sense. So, somehow, I convinced him not to quit, and he agreed to meet with me every week for a while, just to talk about the Christian life and, and study the Bible. And I, I'm confident that it was nothing that I said but I have rarely seen someone change 
as much as Craig did in the, in the year and the years that followed. He had known the truths of the gospel for many years in his head, but it was as if they had never really sunk down into his heart. He began to be more honest and open about his weaknesses and his struggles, and at the same time, more joyful in his Savior. He softened and was able to let go of control. He also developed a new willingness to have hard conversations and enter into disagreement. And most surprising to me was that Craig, the, the retired computer science professor, began to lead the church in reaching out in new ways and welcoming others who were ethnically and, and socially very different from most of the members of our predominantly white middle-class church. It was Craig who led so much of that work. And I'm so thankful for Craig's story because it reminds me what is true for all of us. Left to our own devices, we would all look like Saul in our story today. Defensive, critical, self-protective, jealous, angry, fearful, suspicious. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus knows what we are like and he meets us in our weakness in Christ, by faith, we are no longer orphans, but sons and daughters of God. When you look to Christ for your identity, your status, your meaning, then you can love as he loves, you can give as he gives, and you can serve as he serves. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Friends, the pressures of this world and our own hurts and histories, uh, they encourage us to live self-protective, small, uh, hard lives. But when you see what Christ has done for you in its fullness, then you'll want to follow him. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, we can take up our own crosses and follow him. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, you are gracious and kind uh, to us, far beyond our deserving. Uh, we pray today that you would help us to see the ways that we are tempted to jealousy and bitterness so that we might nip those things in the bud and instead find our delight, our hope, our satisfaction in you as our Savior. May your love transform us and shape us into the likeness of Christ today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.